0: We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at Bellencat.com
1: Hello and welcome to World Weekly from the Financial Times. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we're discussing the blockade of Qatar, the super-rich Gulf state that is now facing the severance of economic and diplomatic ties by its neighbours, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain and Egypt. Why has it happened and what are the consequences going to be? Joining me on the line from Doha, the Qatari capital, is our correspondent Simeon Kerr. And on the line from Beirut, Erica Solomon, who's been reporting the story for us. Simeon,
2: first, just give us an idea, what's the atmosphere like in Doha now? Well, there's a deep sense of unease here. This is quite an unprecedented event. Uh, this sort of transportation isolation of the country. There are, you know, it's very difficult to get in and out of the country now. People fear that there are going to be food shortages. Uh, there's going to be a big impact on business delivery of the World Cup. All these are sort of making the, the daily reality of life more difficult. But underneath that, there's a broader sense of concern about what does this mean for the country? you know, the threats from Saudi Arabia and Abu Dhabi in this issue, uncertain as, as to where it might lead. And there's certainly a deep sense of here that people want to see the mediation efforts from Kuwait work. But there's also a deep concern that they know that might well not work out and they're worried about what else might happen in the coming weeks.
1: And Erica, I mean, this seems to have come more or less out of the blue. What happened? Why did they suddenly take this action?
0: Well, tensions between Qatar and its Gulf Arab neighbors have been sort of brewing quietly for several months, and there's many reasons, but the main ones that are talked about are Qatar's accusations of Qatar funding hardline Islamist groups. So among them would be the political party, the Muslim Brotherhood, but on the more radical end, groups that are probably linked to al-Qaeda. So that's on one side. And on the other side has been Qatar's increasing ties with its neighbor, Iran. And we wrote this week about one particular case that was pretty shocking in which Qatar paid for a hostage deal. It had about 26 members of a hunting party, many of them members of the royal family, who were kidnapped in Iraq about a year and a half ago. And Qatar, in one deal, managed to pay off both Iranian security officials and a group that is believed to have ties to al-Qaeda called Tahrir al In Syria. And according to some of the officials we spoke to, the number that they might have paid in total could could have been a billion dollars or around a billion dollars. So it just shows you how shocking the amount of money that they've been putting into these things are. And I think, you know, for their Gulf neighbors, the idea, you know, first paying jihadi groups, but on top of that, their arch rival, Iran, this sort of like symbolically, but in a lot of ways, you know, is like the development of these tensions that this hostage deal kind of highlighted.
1: And Simeon, I mean, of course, the Saudis themselves have not been averse to ties, slightly complex sort, but to jihadi groups. So do you think it is the Iranian angle that particularly tipped them over the edge?
2: The Iranian angle is clear. Yes, I think that was a red line, which Saudi Arabia would not accept one of, you know, a fellow GCC state to cross. So yeah, that certainly pushed things along. But it's broader than that. Still, it is just this sense that, Riyadh and Abu Dhabi want Doha to be on more on the same page as them in terms of how they foresee the future of the broader Middle East and, you know, basically comes back down to this crucial fissure is around the Muslim Brotherhood, the Pan-Arab Islamist movement. There is a deep concern about Doha putting, you know, so much support into this group, into the region. and The rest of the Gulf states, I think, have decided that that is also Beyond the pale, and that generally they just want to see Doha to be more genuflective towards them on most matters. So they want to see a quieter Doha in future, and that's why they've really ramped up the pressure this time. There was a spat back in 2014, which now looks like a storm in the teacup. It was just a you know few diplomats withdrawn. Now they're sending a very strong message that they want to see this resolved for good.
1: And just give us a sense before I go back to Erica. I mean, for people who haven't been following it closely, how remarkable the story of Qatar has been. I mean, it's a tiny place which
2: now has influence, economic and indeed political all over the world. The early 1990s, before the current Emir's father, Hamad, came in, the cattle was an insignificant. They could barely pay civil servants' fees. Then they borrowed loads of money. They developed a gas industry, which has brought them untold riches and made them one of the richest countries in the world. And they've used that cash to develop their soft power in the region via Al Jazeera and their interventionist uh, sort of policies around, you know, trying to be a mediating force and hosting political groups in Doha on the one hand, but in terms of international finance, they became one of the biggest deal makers in global finance. The Sovereign Wealth Fund was doing deals all over the world, particularly London real estate, European Blue chips. They became the go to guys for many people in finance who wanted to, if you needed to bail out your British banks, their Qatar was your man, as it were. So they, they really managed to make themselves a sort of a key player in global affairs, both politically and economically and that's you know from this tiny you know 30 years ago they were nothing so it's been a an amazing journey for them but now i think that what they're realizing is that you know there's soft power is all well and good but um unless you've got a bit more hard power which they don't particularly have apart from an american base which is based here but they now have concerns about whether the american base here is going to completely back them up against any potential threats from Saudi Arabia.
1: Well, you mentioned the American base. So, Erica, I mean, obviously, one thing that happened just a few weeks before all this was Donald Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia. His first foreign trip overseas went very well. Do you think that Trump may have given the Saudis the green light or encouraged them to do this?
0: I think probably emboldened them, because especially when he gave his speech at the summit in Riyadh, he very clearly highlighted Iran as sort of the main enemy, the source of terrorism in the region, and kind of clearly aligned himself with this sort of hawkish, anti-Iran sphere. And that kind of linked him very closely, politically and ideologically right now with where Riyadh and Abu Dhabi are. And at the same time, I think for them, that was kind of a signal, OK, we can take this move. But on the other hand, we've also seen reports coming out of Washington saying that U.S. diplomats are a bit blindsided. So I think that it probably did encourage them, but it didn't necessarily mean that it was done in any type of direct coordination.
1: So. Yeah, I mean, and Simeon, Erica refers to the fact that there does seem to be some division in, in American opinion, because it's not actually necessarily, it seems to me, in America's interests for their close allies in the Gulf to be close to war with each other is at least diplomatic and economic warfare. And as you mentioned, there is this huge American airbase in Qatar. So is this necessarily something that the United States beyond the Oval Office will regard with favour?
2: Oh, no, definitely not. I mean, it's completely counterproductive to American interests. They thought they were building a more united Gulf and Muslim world to take on some of the burden of policing in the region. And what they've ended up with is some squabbling neighbours in the Gulf. I think that there is deep division. The State Department has a different view to the White House on this, it would appear. And and the Pentagon also, they've come out and praised Qatar because they see their base in LOD is vital to their military operations in the region. There's very little chance that they want to see that go away or see that change. So the Pentagon, you know, press briefing were asked about Donald Trump's tweet about, you know, backing Saudi against Qatar, and they they just wouldn't answer on that. They said they couldn't help the journalists with that question. And that clearly, they have a different outlook to Donald Trump on this issue.
1: So looking forward, then, uh, both of you, how do we think this is going to play out? I mean, Simeon first, I mean, just on the practical level, how long can Qatar hold out? I mean, how vital are its transport links, say, with Dubai for food and indeed exports?
2: There has been contingency planning. They look like that they're going to manage to keep food supplies going. The economic impact of not being able to use the re-export base of Jebel Ali in Dubai is going to be massive. That's going to cost them more. Delivering the World Cup in 2022, which is going to be a little more difficult with a closed border with Saudi. I guess theoretically, once again, we are talking about the, one of the richest countries in the world. They do have vast resources, but it does seem economically sort of counterproductive to try and carry on in that respect. So it'd be very difficult for them to carry on, but they've got a lot of money. So it's very difficult to say what they will choose to do. And
1: Erica, finally, do you think this is uh, the proverbial kind of passing storm, a little crisis? The Gulf states making a point, and then everything will be calmed down. Or does this feel like the beginning of really quite a serious crisis that will be with us for quite a while?
0: I hope it's a passing storm, but I think that there's a lot of little side elements right now that are bubbling up that kind of suggest that this could, re- you know, this could cause some changes. If it's not. Patched up quickly. One thing I'd point out is that, you know, in the past few days, we've seen both Turkey and Iran make gestures to Qatar, sort of in support. Turkey's talked about speeding up um, the presence of its troops, which were supposed to be deployed in, in Qatar. Iran has offered to help with food shipments. I mean. You know, if, if this doesn't get resolved, we could see alignments start to shift further in the future. And the other thing, of course, is that if this doesn't get resolved, you also have the issue of this uh, base that we've been talking about, the American base. It's, it's critical for the air flights that are being done for strikes against ISIS right now in Syria and Iraq. And so if this escalates, I think it'll put the U.S. in a very difficult position at the same time that it's having diplomatic issues with Turkey, where it's other bases where it's doing strikes against ISIS. So this is not a good position to be in when you're leading an international campaign to fight the world's most notorious jihadi group. And secondly, today, another event that happened that's worrying is that there was a militant attack in Iran, in Tehran, um, that was claimed by ISIS. And the first fingers that they pointed were towards Saudi Arabia. So you see a lot of these things happening, and it is very worrying in terms of, the general environment here. And um, while I do hope that Kuwait has stepped in to try and mediate, the US has said, despite Trump's tweets, that they will also try and mediate, you know, I think the best hope is that they can patch this up somewhat quickly. But there are a lot of signs that this could be shifted and pulled in different directions if it's not resolved.
1: Okay, well, we'll be watching it very closely in the coming weeks. But for now, thanks very much indeed to Erica Solomon and to Simeon Kerr. That's it for this week. Until next week. Goodbye.
0: Care to join us? Learn how at bellandcat.com.